If you find yourself in Nashville anytime soon, I highly recommend that you make a visit to Jerry's 12th South Ice Cream Parlor to your agenda. That I am recommending such a place tells you right there that it must be really good because I don't particularly even like ice cream. I don't crave it. I don't need it like some of you do. It has to be a special occasion, you know, and it has to be guaranteed that it's going to be really good. But Jenny's is really unique. When you enter, you immediately see, no matter what time of day you go, there is a line waiting. And you walk in, and there's a big chalkboard at the end, and people are peering to see what the flavors of the day are going to be. I promise you that you have never imagined the names and flavors and the combinations of what they come up with, which is actually what makes them a draw. Flavors like pistachio and honey, wildberry lavender, Riesling poached pear sorbet, and so it goes. And as the line moves forward, you begin to narrow down your choices. As you get closer to placing your order, the server recognizes the familiar look in your eye that says, help, I don't know what to choose. And with a smile and a small spoon, they say, may I offer you a sample? But then you have to choose what the sample's going to be. And so you tend to go with something, at least if you're made, chocolate sounds a little safe, so some kind of version of chocolate. And you taste it and you go, mmm. Man, that really is good. But you realize the server sees in your eye that you just can't make a commitment yet. And so he says, would you like another sample? And say, sure. And you have no idea. And then they just offer you one. So again, you say, wow, this is really good too. So now what do you do? Because out of the corner of your eye, you can see the line. The people are getting restless and anxious because they are waiting for you to finish so they can have their, their turn to make a choice. But so you finally make a commitment. And sometimes you go crazy and you order something that you didn't even taste because you just trust it's going to be good. And you walk away with brown butter almond brittle and you do agree that, yes, it's good. But there's something that says to you inside, but was it the best? No doubt, as I'm telling that story, you have your own version of Jenny's 12 South that comes to mind as you heard my dilemma of, of not only choosing but wanting to choose the best. You and I live each day with a multitude of choices, what to eat, what to wear, what to watch on Netflix, how to spend a free afternoon if you ever have one, what to do on a Saturday night if University of Virginia is not playing basketball, and then there are the most impactful things that, for you to choose. Where our kids will go to preschool through college, who our friends are, who to marry. And we believe that having a myriad of choices is a good thing. We want choices. We deserve them. We've earned the right to them. While it's been the long common wisdom that there is no such thing as having too many choices, Actually, psychologists and economists tell us something different. They say that an overload of options may actually paralyze people or make them unsettled wondering if they have chosen the best. I knew that without a psychologist telling me that as I stood in line. An excess of choices often leads us to be less, not more satisfied when we actually decide. We have that nagging feeling that we could have done better 
So we keep pushing and making more choices and more choices, seeking to find the best. That unsettledness, and it's really an unsettledness, it creeps into every area of our life, even our life of faith. If we are honest, too often we sample Jesus, taking what we want to hear from him, what makes us feel good, and pushing aside those things that don't. So when we hear the words of Jesus that he speaks in these two passages that were read for us this morning, we put up our hands to resist and we say, wait a minute, I'm not sure about this. What do you mean there's a narrow door? What do you mean that not all will enter? And we hear Jesus saying that there really is only one choice and then Jesus suddenly appears to us to be intolerant and harsh And we miss, when we think that way, we miss the incredibly gracious, the grand, and the glorious expression of love that he is actually showing to us. So let's look more closely at those passages. It would be helpful if you open a Bible, and if you're looking at Luke chapter 13, to follow along. We're going to look at the first two verses in that passage today, verses 22 and 23. I'll read it for you. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And up to to this point in the gospel, Luke has been telling us that everything, absolutely everything that Jesus is doing is moving him towards Jerusalem and all that is waiting for him there. He knows what's in store. But Jesus is doing exactly what he has been asked by God the Father to do. He's not distracted. He's on course. He knows what he's about to go through. And even as he's going through the towns and villages, it doesn't stop him from teaching and healing as he can. The crowd following him is growing. And they are following him and they're rejoicing at all the glorious things that are being done by him. Luke tells us that. They were seeing Jesus in action, and the word about him was spreading. Within the crowd that day, there had to have been some who found it hard to explain why they were even there. Why were they following after him? What were they looking for? Some would have been just curious about Jesus, like some of you are here this morning. Maybe they had heard what Jesus was doing. And so they wanted to see for themselves what people were talking about. Some may have discovered that week that they were ill and that they were facing their own mortality. They may not have had an interest in Jesus before, but now suddenly they're thinking that maybe Jesus just might have something to say to them. Some had experienced his challenges in their business, in their work, in their marriage, and the uncertainty of it all had made them think that maybe now was a good time to consider spiritual things because the emptiness of those other situations was becoming even more clear. Today, some of you are here and with your own questions of Jesus. Who is he, really? What does he really do that makes any difference at all in my life? Maybe you would be like this person who worked their way to the front of the crowd to be near enough to ask his particular burning question, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? This is what I call a lean-in question. 
It's easy to imagine a silence suddenly falling on the crowd and a bit of pushing forward as people are leaning and they don't want to miss the answer. It may not have been their question, but that's a good one. It's really a curious question to ask, though, in front of a crowd. It's a speculative one, and it's also a completely self-serving one. There's a question underneath the question, will I be in Jesus, and who will be out? The questioner was obviously not a longtime follower of Jesus because he or she would have known that Jesus rarely answered questions with the answer the questioner is hoping for. One person may have asked the question, but Jesus knew it was the crowd who needed to hear the answer. Something more than what was simply being asked. You see, the teacher Jesus knows best, and his answers are never wrong, they're never misguided, and they're always on point. Just like the question asker, you and I think we can examine Jesus intellectually, and it's true we can, but when Jesus examines us, he cuts through our layers to examine our heart, and he looks beneath the question to what is really going on deep within us. So what answer did the crowd need to hear from Jesus that day? What do we need to hear from him now? Look with me, if you will, verse 24 and 25. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Strive, narrow door, not able to enter. I do not know where you come from. Words and phrases of Jesus that you and I hope we never hear from him. But there they are. They're right there. He has said it. So what's going on here? Are these harsh judgments of Jesus or are they really grace-filled invitations from him? Jesus turns the question back, and he answers with a practical and personal response. Jesus is saying, the question you have about numbers and what will happen to others, that's not really the issue. What should be the greatest concern for you, each of you listening, is that you make sure, and without delay, that you step through the narrow door. Make sure well before the door closes that you don't allow yourself to be distracted by temporary priorities and other choices so that you ignore the intensely personal and necessary message of the kingdom of God that I have for you. Jesus is saying, and by the way, you really don't have an option here if you want to be with me. This is it. There's a narrow door for you to walk through, and the time is short. There is a singular way. There is no other. So they make every effort, agonize, wrestle, struggle, strive to get through that door. Okay, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about grace? I had no idea there would be a need for any agonizing or striving. I can only imagine that with those words that some in the crowd said to themselves, I don't like this choice. This is not an option I have in mind. I'm gone. And many of you have known people who have turned away because of such words. 
But if those words were new to the crowd, then they really had not been listening and paying attention to Jesus as he was teaching. Because over and over in so many different ways, Jesus had been saying that there is one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through him. You remember some of those words. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Yes, it is indeed by the grace of God that we are saved, not by works that any of us should boast. Being saved and getting through the door is all about something that God did. It happens totally outside of who we are. The ground of our salvation is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But the evidence of our new life, our reconciled relationship with God, is what you and I make of this journey. No one, no one ever enters the kingdom of God without being intentional to do so. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This is getting a little bit tougher to hear, isn't it? I'm really glad the sun is shining out there today. People who assumed, they assumed that they would be allowed in, will find the master saying, I don't know you. What would make us ever think that just brushing up against Jesus and being in his presence is enough? Or how could we think that knowing Jesus through the faith of someone else might be ever sufficient? When Mike and I were serving another church, I was leading a ministry that needed someone to manage the details for me. My assistant, Kimberly, would say, yes, Jackie always needs help managing the details. A volunteer came forward, and I invited her to lunch so we could talk and get to know each other. After we ordered lunch, I began our conversation with just a simple invitation. I said, tell me about your faith. And she answered very quickly and very proudly. She said, well... I'm a fifth-generation member of this church. And as I remember, I didn't respond verbally, but I think my blank expression must have said volumes. The good news is that in just a matter of seconds, she said, that really sounded silly, didn't it? That's not what you were asking me. And I kept from responding, yes, it really did kind of sound silly. But then she went on to tell a wonderful story, a wonderful story of her own and very personal faith in Jesus Christ, one that was hers completely. Her fifth-generation legacy was very much a part of that story, but as she told her own story of faith, she didn't lead with that. She had had her own encounter, her own relationship with Jesus that she was living out of. You see, if you were talking about your faith in Jesus, you simply start by talking about your faith in Jesus. We don't come through the narrow door through the faith of another. Outward contact with Jesus means nothing. The inward turning towards him is absolutely everything. 
There is no bargaining with the Lord Jesus on this one. There is no other way. There's no other choice. But if you are alive even small ways to the things of God, you know well, you live them, you already have lived them today, you will live them the rest of the day. The words from the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And if I'm honest, what I'm really prone to do is try to get through that narrow door by the skin of my teeth. Now here's some good news that I know you're waiting to hear the good news. Jesus knows that about us. And he doesn't leave us to strive and find our way through the narrow door on our own. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Turn with me, if you will, to John 10. I'll be looking at verses 7 and 9. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, I love it, that Jesus kept having to explain things. Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. When Jesus is talking about being the door, he's not talking about a structural design, but rather a relational one. You and I have been designed since before the beginning of creation to be in a relationship with the one true living God. When Jesus told those who were following him that he was the door of the sheep, they knew what that meant. That Jesus was saying that he would do anything for them. Anything to give them life, even laying down his own. Just like a shepherd in the Judean hills would lie down across the opening of the gate to the sheep pen so that no sheep could enter or exit without going over his body. And nothing could get into the pen to destroy them. Because you see, with Jesus at the door, Jesus at the door of our lives, we are not going to be led away by strangers or follow their choice, choices and aimlessly go from here and there. The good shepherd became the door for the wandering sheep. The narrow door is not a tightly built frame for us to squeeze through, but the door is a person. It's the Son of God whose whole purpose is to get me through the door and to guide me into that life with the one true God from today and through all eternity. And he does that by laying down his life for all those who wander. Jesus and Jesus alone is the gateway through which men and women may enter. Friends, that is the message of the good news of Jesus. So what do I need to know? What do I need to do now? I want to leave you with an image this morning and invite you to focus right above me your sight on the singular view on the cross. Just sit for a moment with it. No distractions. No other choices vying for your attention, but only the cross of Jesus. Because you see, if you have not entered the narrow door, God says, look at this cross. And what you do is you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Enter through the gates. Trust in his work and sacrifice on the cross for the sake of your sin and mine. Believe and know that if there had never been another, 
Christ would have died for you and come and enter into the guarantee that he has given us through the death and resurrection of his son. For those of you who have already, by his grace, joined with Jesus through the door, simply say, thank you again, Jesus. Thank you. Be with me as I continue to strive. And then imagine, if you will, either for the first time or yet again, that Jesus is looking from the cross, looking at you. And his gaze is sweeping, and it's long, and it's deep. May your eyes meet his as he looks at you with all the love needed to bring you through that door. Thanks be to God.